You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. Today I am joined by a guest that I have known for quite a while, someone I admire, uh, Mr. Greg Toom. Uh, I met Greg when he was the uh, CEO of Volvo Watches. Uh, he now has recently started a, a new watch brand, which is uh, Toom & Co. Uh, Greg, hello. Hi, Ariel. So, Greg, the reason that I thought we would have a great conversation for the audience is because you and I are both what we call product guys. And in the watch space, what that means is someone who isn't just interested in watches from a business perspective, but has a genuine enthusiasm um, for the product. And in your instance, you really began as a watchmaker, which is by no means the, the normal path for a lot of brand CEOs. I guess what my first question is, why is it, tell people, why is it that it isn't common for watchmakers to actually end up running watch brands? Well, in the end, a watch brand is a commercial enterprise. And so the road of a career to the top of running a watch company generally generally runs uh, from uh, people that come from the sales end of the business or the financial side of the business. The product side of the business is seldom, if ever, a part of the uh, say the candidates that would work their way into upper management running the actual company. Is that, is that common though? Because it seems like in most industries that have a product which requires so much attention to detail, you think about clothing, you think about cars and everything in between, to have someone from accounting run like a car maker or a, a clothing company, like, is that normally how it's done? Well, you know as well as I that it didn't used to be that way. Uh, um, the uh, uh, Patek Philippe and uh, you know the countless other brands were watchmakers. You know those guys uh, definitely were not financially connected. They were inspired to become a company based on their engineering principles and their desire to bring to the market things that they believe were fantastic. And so that's what drove the, let's say, the kernels of the industry itself. But as it matured, so did the desire to satisfy people who've invested in companies. And I think the the drive to manage, um, you know, through the financial side uh, was the driving force that then, you know, brought with it research and development and brought with it the genius of, you know, let's say the engineers and the developers of the product. Not a good, uh, maybe a good connection to your question is how the Packard Motor Car Company was started by James Ward Packard uh, back in the late 1800s. He didn't own the company more than 10 years and he was bought out by the shareholders. And he was given a a voting seat on the board, but he was not the boss any longer. And so while it was his genius and his ideas that started the company, 
the motor, so to speak, that drove Packard was run just like watch companies run today by the financial side. Now, that's very interesting. And thank you for sharing that. And I'm just thinking in my mind about sort of the market forces that lead to that. And it seems to me that, you know, when accounting takes over, it means that they feel that they understand the market and it's just a matter of investing in the market correctly. But in the watch space, the last, I'd say, 10 years or so has shown that it is not business as usual. To succeed in watches, you need to innovate and try new things, experiment, take risks, all those things that sort of like financial leaders do not have a good track record of doing. <laughs> um, and it's it's interesting. So I guess here's what I want, I want you to say. Make sort of a pitch to sort of the ambiguous watch brand and why they should always put a, a, a product guy or gal in charge these days. I want to hear it. Well, I can say that the, the best pitch would be to talk about what happened to Bolivar. Okay, let's hear it. Bolivar was run by financial people for decades. So when, you know, the Bolivar family started the company back in the 1800s, they, um, you know, they really ran the, uh, the product side of it from an engineering standpoint. You know, they just, they just like any other watch brand, manufactured their own movements and many other parts were, you know, very intimately involved in the production of them, uh, outsourcing some, but still in control of everything. And as the company uh, matured and got bigger, the sales and financial side really became the driving force of decision-making and strategies that drove the company uh, through the 30s, 40s, 50s. And then in the 60s, the Accutron was uh, brought into the market, which is another engineering idea. Certainly didn't come from the finance department. Yeah, never. Like that would never come from an accountant. <laughs> no, no. In fact, it's it's uh, boondoggled the the world and 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 trying to remake the Accutron movement. And uh, it doesn't seem like there's uh, really a, a capability to mass produce that watch. Uh, as when I was running Bulova, uh, that was uh, really. The problem. And what you're referring to is a, a tuning fork based movement that, you know, when 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 Bulova came re came out with that limited edition Accutron that had the tuning. What was they yeah. had like hand spool <laughs> the, the yeah. copper cabling? Oh, it was yeah, the the, the whole movement itself was the uh, you know, Bulova bought a, a thousand movements and paid over a million dollars for them. You know, it was uh uh just before I joined that that uh, thousand piece uh, limited edition of the original Accutron was made. And uh, long story short, after the thousand, they were, they were never made again. And so the, the, the circling back to the reason for bringing this up is Oliva no longer had the mojo factor. The Accutron had, you know, went peaked, flattened, and then, eventually fizzled away back into the, you know, say the mid 1970s. And so Bulova lived off its laurels, calling things Accutron when they were quartz movements inside. And yeah, to just say, to, to make a very long story short, Bulova became uh, less and less an owner of the, the, the bridge brand market share, which was mainly a Movado, Seiko, Citizen, um, 
let's say brands that were the the bridge between the fashion department and the luxury watch department. And Bolivo is certainly a uh, a distant fourth place uh, uh, back in the say the early to mid two thousands. I mean, by, yeah, oh, go ahead, go ahead. no, I just say I remember you know in the nineties and especially in the early two thousands as a sort of emerging watch lover. You know, you knew about Bulova. It was a name that you were aware of. But if you were like a watch lover, you 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 probably wouldn't consider consider getting any modern Bulova. They they were not they were not for uh, an enthusiast audience. It was a it was sort of a brand on a a weird type. I wouldn't say life support because they were doing. I guess it was doing okay. But like it, there were, there wasn't there didn't seem to be any actual watchmaking innovation for a long time. So what changed? Well, what changed was the. The acquisition of uh, Bulova by Citizen Holdings and uh, Citizen bought a competitor brand since they both shared the bridge category and they wanted to um, you know, own Bulova, not to shelf it and let it shrink so that Citizen theoretically could get bigger. They wanted Bulova to prosper again. And so they saw the financial leadership at the time uh, was not the, you know, the right team to do that. And so because of my connection to Citizen during the eight years I was SVP at Fossil, I knew the many of the upper managers of Citizen's movement group, including um, the gentleman that eventually became the CEO of Citizen Holdings, which is the parent company that owns all of Citizen's investments. And that gentleman uh, and I had very good chemistry. And uh, eventually he offered me the position to run Bulova um, because he wanted the mojo back. And he felt that I could help them create new brand equity. So what, what did he say to you? Because did he use the word mojo? Like, I'm just curious how that conversation went. <laughs> no, he didn't. He didn't <laughs> use the word mojo. But the, the, let's say the, the, the summation of what he was trying to say was we need a leader that's supply chain savvy, that knows how to design product from the inside out, that has a good um, you know, track record in creating things from zero. And we believe that you'd be a very good choice for us. And I ended up through a year's consultancy with them back in 2012, um, became the choice that they wanted to, you know, give me a three-year shot at changing the uh, strategy product-wise, which, you know, trickled domino effect, I guess you'd say, into the the way that Boulevard is actually uh, uh, run today, and so it was. It was in the back seat of his uh, real fancy Japanese limousine Ooh. that I that I spoke about this dream I had about making a watch that had a curved movement in quartz, and um, because Japanese brands tend to be considered gadget brands. You know, they always say, you know, a watch that can tell you the distance from the earth to the sun. And, uh, you know, it takes like six hours to figure out how the, the dial actually works on some of those, you know, super complicated um, multiple function uh, watches made by both Seiko and Citizen. And I said that uh, an American brand like Bulova should be more about form 
and much less about the substance of gadgetry. Yeah. And, and so um, that was the thesis statement that uh, turned the green light on uh, for his support, his personal support, uh, pushing the engineering group uh, that ran their movement division to listen to and follow and then do what I wanted them to do. And, and, the, so, curve, and the curve came out and it just came out with a new version in a, in a Tano case. Uh, you know, it's, it, you know, I, I, what, what I want to say to everyone out there who is interested in watches and Bulova is that when Greg was there, that was when Bulova as a brand got back on the radar of watch enthusiasts. Um, and I remember starting to cover Bulova more on a blog to watch at the time. And it, and it's starting from, Oh yeah, Bulova. Oh, I remember them to, Oh, that's a cool Bulova. I'm going to check this brand out again to, you know, people buying and getting into Bulova and stuff like that. And it was a momentum that had to be created. And you implicitly understood they had to get the enthusiasts on board. What was the response to that like internally? Because that is, by no means a wisdom that is shared by everyone. Well, yeah, I, I, I guess you could say human nature uh, of all, uh, all of us uh, in the workplace tend to be more interested about job security and um, basically keeping things the way that they are because they worked 10 years ago. Uh, and so there really was not, it was kind of a deer in headlight situation since no uh, freakish watch guy rolled down the highway into Bulova for you know a long, long time. And uh, so when the curve was in production, when we launched the initial collection, uh, we had a you know, lot of hubbub about it from people like yourself. And uh, because it was recognizable by those of us that could see that this is something that a consumer could see as a point of difference. But the internal uh, connection was uh, weak on the sales side, uh, marketing side, super excited, super engaged, and very helpful in trying to create a very, you know, Bulova-like story to bring to the public eye that we've got something new. So I want to I want I want to ask you an important question here, and you know, there's this legacy of these incredible advertisements for watches in the past. And now that sort of Accutron came back um, in that show, Mad Men, I'm sure you've, you've seen many times already, there oh, was sure. that sort of faux pitch for Accutron watches. And obviously that was that was like an accident, like Accutron never knew that was gonna happen. So Bulova, of course, and, and the parent company really, really benefited from all that. But there's this history of amazing watch marketing, like amazing watch marketing. And then at some point it was lost. And so then when a, a, a company today is presented with a task of marketing a new product, why is it that there doesn't seem to be a revisit to some of those old strategies and saying, how can we do that again today? Why does why there seem to be so much like tripping over each other's feet when it comes to marketing a new product, even, even though there's all these great lessons from the past, which is exactly what the watch industry is good at, learning good lessons from the past? Well, I think the, the launch of and so using the example of the curve uh, to talk about this, uh, I think we did try uh, to do that. Uh, and we did, you know, spent an inordinate amount of money um, on 
uh, say, fresh new ways of uh, telling the bull of the story to the public, we made, you know, a, like a mini, uh, uh, let's say, uh, film clip commercial uh, uh, of the, of the, uh, it wasn't the curb, it was the Accutron 2 that we came up with. It was another collection that was um, embracing the idea that the Accutron um, name and, and brand was alive and well, but we tried to create a version of a regular quartz watch that had a skeletonized dial that actually is very attractive. Some of them weren't skeletonized, but uh, we did spend money that was never spent, you know, for the years before. You know, back in the 70s, they had, you know, full page ads with 40 different movie actors talking about Bulova Muhammad Ali had to wear two because his personality was so flamboyant. One wife wasn't <laughs> enough. That's cool. And, they, and each actor probably did the whole thing for 50 bucks or something, you know. And so uh, today, uh, you know, the idea of having uh, uh, Hollywood ambassadors represent your brand is a multi-million dollar proposition. And so that that avenue is something that was not considered because of his uh, of the expense. And, you know, frankly, Bulova does have a very strong brand equity that has not fizzled out. And the, the buying community that, that supports Bulova uh, isn't going to go buy uh, a Rolex when they hit the level of achievement in life that they want to have, an, you know, a watch that reminds them of that. Uh, they're most probably going to consider, you know, Bulova and watches in the bridge brand category is the way of having a, a timepiece that's, you know, a mark of achievement. Oh, you you have to describe yeah. for the listeners what a bridge brand is, because that's that's pretty sort of insider um, way of describing a, a category of watches. What is a bridge brand? Well, a bridge brand is is one that uh, is it, it's located within the fashion watch floor of a, of the brick and mortar shop, but it's not grouped together with the Guess, the Timex, the Fossil. Uh, and all the fossil licensed brands. Uh, like uh, a bridge to finer watches? Right. It's in between fashion and fine. So that's why they call it bridge. Okay. And, and so it, it, it's it's basically Movado, Citizen, Seiko, and Bulova. Now, I think what's very interesting is that over the last maybe 10 to 15 years, probably 20 years, the watch industry has faced a very interesting reckoning. And that reckoning is... There's still a lot of appeal out there. A lot of people like watches, but timepieces as a tool for the public is never really going to have the same volume as it had in maybe the 20th century. In the 21st century, watches serve a very different purpose. And while a lot of people rely on them as tools, someone who strictly needs a watch as just a time-telling instrument to do other stuff might be compelled by something like a smartwatch. And so the size of the watch market as well as the, the watch market buyer has fundamentally changed, probably forever. Have the the financiers and powers uh, that be? What have, what is their reaction to this ban? Of course, they don't love this, but how are they perceiving this interesting shift? Well, yeah, the shift has happened, and I believe that the shift of why it happened can explain maybe a bit about how it could be managed, and that that means is that you know been in the, uh, the Let's say 2014, six years ago, seven years ago, um, 
the watch market was really rocking and rolling. It was on the fifth year of a of a of a bubble, as it turned out. And you know, after the market crashed in two thousand eight, uh, two thousand nine, the the recovery, so called recovery, uh, from the mid two thousand nine to the fourth quarter of two thousand fourteen, the fashion watch business was uh, on fire. You know, yeah, it was, when, it was. There was so much of it going around. I mean, it was like yeah. there was this sort of era in the '90s where the fashion watch yeah. was like super strong. It was like a little bit of a revival of that, big time. And you know, in the when the year 2000 happened, they said that you know the uh, retail strategist said that Americans uh, in general are going to become very sentimental, and so there's going to be a lot of sentimental purchasing made in 2000 and 2001, which never happened. Uh, and but what did happen was that's really what I believe was the drive towards, or at least partially the reason for the drive towards people being attracted to watches. Uh, so not to digress into all the twists and turns that made the the bubbles start and the the bubble grow like crazy. Um, the uh, the American consumer really didn't embrace the fashion watch as a consumer product for mainstream purchasing until the economy crashed. And when the economy crashed, it was about the same time that cell phone cameras became very uh, uh, say sophisticated and useful and had all sorts of features. They'd had them years before, but it's about that time that those big, you know, super eight video cameras and all the, you know, digitalized video cameras that were they came after that each one was always right around a thousand dollars. Yeah. That business just went into smoke. And oh yeah. Just, and and so that business went away. The fashion watch category was where that extra disposable income in the uh you know family cookie jar was used to spend on something else. And uh, that's you know my personal reason how why the fact the fashion watch business went up when this, the, the video camera business went down. The cell phone became more important uh, to the consumer. And uh, but yet, you know, watches were a sign of all sorts of things. And like you said, after communication had risen, you have a portable phone that you can call and say, I'm going to be late for this meeting. Uh, you know, all the things that happened because of computer sophistication Time became a lot less important right around the same time as the economy crashed, the, the video camera business went away. And, the you know, so the watch became less of a thing to tell time with, and it became more of a uh, kind of a category of brands that people really thought were cool. So Armani and Diesel and, you know, many other brands. Uh, that were multiple category um, licenses that also made a fashion watch uh, became, you know, you know, within the radar screen what uh, mainstream consumers are looking for. And so, and so the beat was on to, to buy a really cool fashion watch. They're all steel. They're no longer made out of brass and the, you know, they, they fall apart in a couple of months or a year at the best. The fashion watches used to be yeah. pretty awful things. Oh, my God. There certainly <laughs> wouldn't be anything to blog about. And so <laughs> there uh, wouldn't be any watch left. We've seen some of these watches that the way they age, like rubber straps that disintegrate, they just disintegrate. Uh, they're just awful. 
just there's nothing like I said, there was really nothing to say other than run. And and so um, the, 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 the whole thing came apart because of the Internet. Uh, the Internet was a great vehicle for selling back in 2010, 11, 12, you know, the earlier days of uh, e-commerce. And what happened was, is when you're running a business that there's just so out of control, successful, that the supply chain to keep feeding that monster. And we're talking about a company that was, you know, we're talking, you know, all the fashion watch companies, but let's just say that the one in particular that I was intimate with was Fossil. And, you know, back in 2009, their business was still around 600 million net wholesale sales per year. And by the time I left in 2012, uh, Fossil had hit 3.2 billion net wholesale sales. Wow. And so to grow, you know, by, by five times in just, you know, just a few years is, is a great thing. But that great thing behind the curtain meant that the supply chain had to make five times more in volume. And so um, that meant that the algorithms for purchasing and, you know, the, 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 the study and the algorithmic math behind forecasting inventory uh, it was, you know, just coming out of Dodge City in the, you know, the the dark ages back then. You sell one, you buy one. It was basically the 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 FIFO, um, you know, inventory uh, philosophy. That makes sense. And, and so, yeah, and and you know, EDI was the 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 data that came in from the major department stores and what was selling because the checkout EDI would say that. You know, Fossil model one, two, three, four just sold one piece, and then that EDI transmission would then tell Fossil to buy one. And so that worked great until business was going so fast. And then if you bought product that didn't have great success and you needed to mark it down and close out the pieces that you had left over in the warehouse so that you could turn your, you know, your investment, uh, that created a lot of closeout goods and the best place to dispose of them was at the off-price retailers like TJ Ross stores, you know, and, you know, four or five other big ones. Uh, but also through these off-price peddlers that sold on Amazon's marketplace. And so these guys just drove prices so that the watch you saw at Macy's for $225 could be bought at TJ Maxx for $65. And, you know, this smoke and mirrors about retail and brand equity started to wobble. And, you know, by the, by the fourth quarter of 2014, there was 7 million more watches in the market than there was people that wanted to buy them. You know, and so that, if you just think about stacking up seven million watches in your you know in your garage okay okay hold, hold right here because yeah. i want to i want to unpack yeah. a lot of what you said for someone yeah. that isn't as familiar and again i thought i think that, that was a great way of yeah. describing some things that happened but let's let's just sort of look at what happened so what greg is describing is that there was this very streamlined model that the watch industry used to know how many watches to make where they were being distributed there was this wonderful feedback 
from the retail side, especially if you're selling at, at like department stores, you knew what was selling. You had like a really nice little ecosystem. And then all of a sudden, there was this disruptive force, which wasn't just the internet, but the internet was a big part of it, which took this carefully streamlined model that accountants loved, and it literally just turned it upside down. And what started happening was, one, and this actually didn't have anything to do with the internet, more watches being produced than the the public wanted. Uh, just like Greg said, there was just overproduction. That still happens today, and that's a larger issue. But the question was, you overproduce watches. You can't just destroy them or just you know write off your, your, your investment in them. You, you want to try to monetize them somehow. And so the unsold watches would go to outlets. And traditionally, outlets were these like, out of the way places, you literally had to like drive out of the city limits. And there was the outlet mall, it was sort of cloistered away from, you know, high street shopping. But when outlets hit the internet, and you could outlet shop anywhere, and then actually even cheaper than traditional outlet shopping, there was no more bargain hunting, it was bargain delivering. It was coming to you such that all you had in front of you was bargains all day long. Why would you ever not get a bargain? Because you could buy almost everything at a bargain. And this coupling of the world wanting less watches because it was buying other things like mobile phones and the internet's disruptive force in terms of how watches were distributed basically took all those old models of running the watch industry and made them invalid. Good summation. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch Store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch Store. Right now, the Blog to Watch Store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow-in-the-dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Yeah, and so, but here we are today with the watch industry that has millions of fans around the world, but does not have a new streamlined model. Would you agree that it's an industry with demand, but is floundering for a lot of um, models? Well, that's that's just what's happened is. Uh after this uh, overproduction and rampant discounting to let air out of the balloon, the fashion watch business blew up. The the modern consumer who was, you know, the, it just take the, the the recent college grad to you know, let's say career person in their uh, early twenties, mid twenties, late twenties, back when the watch boom first started happening they were still in you know high school they weren't buying watches and and the the consumer uh who is extremely uh internet savvy uh that was uh driving the buying power at the point of sale they saw the fashion watch business as a smoke and mirrors joke because there was no brand equity because of the retail prices were never protected 
there's the panic to to empty the warehouse uh, and satisfy the investment groups and the in the stock prices uh, was the the number one objective, and in doing so, crushed the reputation of the brands because they no longer represented what they sought out to do. So that the brand X that, like I said, you could buy a TJ for 65, but was available, you know, a very similar version of it or the same version in some cases uh, at uh, Macy's or Nordstrom for, you know, many times more than that price uh, just made the whole buying group run away. And that's the, what, what they ended up doing is they embraced uh, say the connected watch business for a time, but that you know maybe we could save for another podcast. The, Whole other you know, conversation. <laughs> yeah, the, the 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 connected watch business has migrated to the medical device business. It's no longer interested in the mainstream fashion watch customer. It's the uh, the the uh, the medical device aspect of what these wonderful products can do that drives that business now. And the boutique watch business for time only is alive and well. And obviously, you know, the mid-tier and high-end luxury watch business also has, uh, you know, um, a bright future. So let me, let me say this about fashion watches, which I think is really crucial and their relationship to smartwatches. Fashion watches, and I love your opinion here, fashion watches were able to blossom and thrive when watch technology was so mature, it really wasn't a matter of making a better watch. It was just a matter of making a different looking watch to appeal to fashion sensibilities. In the context of smartwatches, it is not a mature technology because smartwatches as, as, a, as hardware and software changes so rapidly, consumers are more interested in getting something that's the latest and greatest versus the one that, that looks the best. And so the era of the fashion watch in regard to smartwatches will come, but it's probably not a good time for right now. No, I, th I think that's a uh, accurate statement. Yeah, okay. you know, it's, it's hard to sell a 1971 used stereo, <laughs> and yeah, exactly. You know, and it's uh, and if you have an a, an Apple Watch that was first generation, good luck trying to sell it. And so it's the very similar situation where consumer electronics has a different is a different animal. It's got a whole different set of rules, and the consumers expectations are totally different than they are with the time-only wristwatch. So, you know, it's a uh, uh, time-only wristwatch is held in a different place in the emotional, you know, data center in a human, a person's body than, than, a, than just like your cell phone or any other consumer electronics device. The moment you buy it, you know that within the next two weeks or a month, there's going to be an updated version of it that makes the one you own obsolete. And there's something about when you buy a traditional watch, knowing that it's not going to be any more obsolete, as I like to say, yes. which is comforting. It's you, you never because there's a sort of in America, especially there's a sort of keeping up with the Joneses, you know, like chase that we, we constantly have, whether or not we like it, there's this chase. And with like when you buy a product that you feel like isn't going to feel obsolete to you soon, there's something so comforting about that, isn't it? Very much so. In fact, you know, not to segue into Pitch and Tumen Company, but the exact statement you just made is our design formula. We chose to 
produce a watch that's bespoke in design. It's not a copy of another brand that you could buy for less. And we created our entire watch brand around a ladies design case and a men's design case, both, uh, say, 36 millimeter, which is actually non-gender specific, but is actually a lady size watch in the 41 millimeter men's. We have two models and both of those models are available in either five link Bricklink bracelet or in fluoroelastomer and leather strap, and then a multitude of dial choices. And we did that because that's how a Swiss brand creates their brand equity. Uh, we didn't, want to use the scattergun effect to see which watch is going to stick in the consumer's you know heart we created our own look singular look when you look at the watch that we produce you know if once familiar that's a tumen company watch and that's uh really the way that we believe that you can build a brand today is it's not just about the unbeatable price, but it's got to be a, a look that's unique and has a story behind it that's real and not a smoke and mirror story like so many others have uh, done and done. And that that in itself is very much what the, the newcomers and the boutique land uh, watch businesses have created a quasi knockoff of Fossil, a knockoff of Timex's watch businesses they just created a marketing campaign that's made it sound like a fresh new direction, but actually it's exactly the same direction so, that, they, okay, so that they use. Let's let's sort of put everything together here from sort of your experience to right now. Yeah. Uh, the watches you have now are priced similar to how a fashion watch would have been priced that you may have bought, you know, some time ago in a, in a Macy's or Bloomingdale's or, or whatnot, but in a market where those distribution sources um, are not available in the same way they, they were. So what is the sort of strategy on how to get people to learn about these products in an era where some of those amazing distribution options simply are no longer available? <laughs> the anomaly of buying a watch a sight unseen is basically what you're saying. <laughs> Uh, well, it, it's well, also just learning about it. You know, you you went yeah. into. I, I mean, again, I'm just keep using Macy's as an example because even just to get into the store, sometimes you had to walk through these giant sections, these vitrines, and these counters of wa endless watches. It's like you had no choice. You had to walk through and just be like, "Hey, by the way, have you considered buying a watch lately?" It was a it was a very powerful thing for consumers. Like, I'm just here to buy underwear, and all of a sudden, I'm looking at watches. How did that yes. happen? Next thing you know, you've got a fur coat on, a, a coonskin cap, and a watch. Yeah. So what is the modern equivalent of, of that? Well, that's a, unfortunately, the answer is there is not a cyberspace version of a uh, multiple category retail shop that you can walk through and get bamboozled by the brand frenzy. You know, the, no one sets out in the morning and says, you know, I'm going to buy myself a watch or uh, but because of the way the the say consumer of yesteryear, uh, my generation, the baby boom generation, uh, would was hook, line, and sinker addicted to department store uh, retail selling because of the description you just made. Uh, it turned you into a consumer, and it made you excited about things. Uh, and the internet 
unfortunately has become a place that you're either buying brands that have earned their equity and are selling there at a fixed price and, or a you know very controlled uh, uh, the discounted price to the peddlerville of marketplace on you know Amazon and others that uh, that are just selling watches at a price and um, uh, one correction about uh, what Tumen Company is doing, we do not have a, a profit load that enables us to have sold to a Macy's because to sell to Macy's would mean that there's there's an additional profit load in the retail price. The way that we're organized financially is we could never sell to brick and mortar stores. We can only sell exclusively through our website because the way the prices that we have assigned to our products uh, really would never never allow us to go sell the same watch to a brick and mortar store because the profit that they demand uh, would leave nothing left for us. So uh, the uh, basically uh, what we're doing is the purest version of retailing. We're manufacturing products literally from workshops all over the world. That's why we have the earth made uh, claim the service mark that we registered to explain that, you know, there's parts of the watches that are actually made in Tumen Company's workshop here in Ohio. Uh, the assembly point is China. Why? Because it's the best assembly shop on the, on the planet. That's why yeah, it's Apple, not about price. Yeah. It's literally like they do no, the best job. They huh. do the best job. And, and if they had that at such a place that was affordable in the U S we would have sent it there to be assembled. But you know, Foxconn, who makes all Apple's uh, phones and many other products, you know, they employ 400,000 workers, <laughs> uh, believe it or not, peppered over, I think, four factories in China. And the, all of Apple's products are made over there because the the investment and, you know, the whole thing is it took 20 years to figure out and to tear it down and rebuild it in the U.S. and charge $4,000 for a phone made here versus $800 for the phone you own uh, isn't even worth a discussion. It's never yeah, going to okay. happen. Okay, so I want to yeah. bring up a really important topic, and this is especially yeah. for all the other entrepreneurs out there that are excited about maybe starting a watch brand or the people that have. And and you pointed this out, and, and this sort of ongoing theme of a watch is priced mostly under $1,000 over the last several years was, save money by cutting out the middleman. Now, I totally <laughs> understand the economics there. It has yeah. been a value proposition that it has worked, especially for consumers that um, are skeptical of luxury pricing. And so you say, we're offering you something similar, but we can charge less because, you know, there isn't the, the big advertising campaign, there isn't the distributor, there isn't the retailer, there isn't the salesperson to, to compensate. And that makes sense. But I've noticed something interesting, and that is, the middleman actually did something important. You know, in the in the in what I mentioned before about Macy's, the middleman attracted a customer to come in, provided that like, you know, retail Disneyland concept where you go in there yeah. and you get excited by all these things and you try stuff on and you get into it. If it was just the consumer and the company making it, that element would be missing. And so the concern I have is that if you cut out too many middlemen, you actually lost something crucial because I always see that the watch industry is this trinity of, of, of three different types of entities. It's watch brands, watch media, and watch retailers. 
And sometimes retailers can, can play a little bit both. But remember that Macy's was sending out ads constantly through the media. If it didn't have that distribution source to constantly market, I mean, Macy's and department stores, I mean, it was, it, it was endless every single day. Push, 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 push. The budget that they made you know, went to that. Is, is there something missing by cutting out so much middleman that you're no longer having a demand creation engine? Well, the answer is yes, there is something missing. And the, the commentary, you know, chapter two on that is if you already are an established brand and you've already earned the equity to win over the consumer's confidence and trust that your brand is, you know, fantastic. Uh, then you shop the internet for the cheapest version of the, the the item that you want because you already know and trust that it's a great product. Uh, it still robs you of the opportunity to uh, feel it and and touch it, whether it's a pair of shoes or or you know any other item, uh, including a watch. It's very difficult, even if you're buying an Omega or whatever you know brand with at any price point. Uh, you know it, you owned one, you know a friend that has one, but you can't touch the one that you just believe you got a, a reasonably good price for it on the internet because you know, you're know 600 miles away from the warehouse that's going to ship it to you. Now, so, I, yeah. I, I look at the car industry because I always try to draw parallels to other industries to understand how economics of the watch industry can fix itself. And I, I want people to know uh, who don't know this about me already, but ever since I got seriously involved in the watch industry, um, more than a decade ago now, I started asking really big questions about the sustainability and the viability of the business model. I, I look very much on a macro level perspective in addition to a micro level of appreciating a single timepiece. But if it's an industry I like, I want the industry to keep going. And every, you know, ever since I started going to shows like Basel World, all these questions of who's buying these things? How does this make sense? How are they affording this? Who, you know, all these things kept coming to me and I always thought there was some good answer out there. And, there, and oftentimes it turned out there, there wasn't a good answer. It was just a, a vestige of some other age. And so I want there to be an economically viable watch industry, which is why, which why I even asked these questions uh, to begin with. So it seems to be the case that in the car industry, when you have these super boutique all, you know, these coach makers or these ultra luxury uh, car makers that like to proudly say, oh, we don't advertise, we're word of mouth. They're benefited by there being a massive mainstream car industry that naturally leads to interest in a, in a high end segment. If it wasn't for the Hondas and the Toyotas and the mainstream cars out there, the Pajanis of the world could not exist. So the question yes. is in watches. If you don't have the Hondas and the Toyotas out there, or at least not the volumes that used to be, how do how do you have a market with just Pajani's? Well, yeah, that that's the, the the key problem, in my opinion, with with uh, spreading the gospel of brands and and demand is very confusing to a young consumer that wants to get into the game, you know, that wants to own something that's really cool and really nice, but they just don't get why one watch would be worth $2,000. And then there's another watch that's also, let's say for an example, made in Switzerland, that's $200,000. And so this Swiss made watch that I just saw at four in the morning on Home Shopping Network is $100 and it's Swiss made. 
why is that watch at a hundred dollars and another Swiss made watch is eight thousand dollars and then this one's two hundred thousand dollars and so if you compare that to the car industry bmw audi and uh mercedes-benz you could say arguably are the three leader german luxury cars in the world but all three of those automakers have an opening price point car that's basically the same between all three competitors they have a family truckster all three of them have priced very similar then yeah. they have the luxury group they're all very similar and so then they have your pie in the sky, you know, the the S classes and the E classes and, you know, the, the AMG classes that are super expensive, but they're all within the same radar. And that price stream. consistency is yeah. so important to the consumer because it creates it creates a sense of trust. Exactly. Right? And, 100%. And, you, and you look at a car and you're yeah. able to feel positive about the price because you look laterally. You know, what's what's that competitor offering and what's that competitor offering? And you can make a judgment. But in watches that, you know, there's I'm not saying that in cars it's sort of a, a collective agreement to do that way. But in watches, you have the opposite. You have the aspirational one. You have the guy saying, I remember what Omega did in the early 2000s where they just arbitrarily increase their prices. And then the perception went up. Maybe I'll try that. Maybe if I say it's a hundred thousand dollar watch, some people will believe it as long as I say it confidently enough. There um, you go. It's part of the beauty of the watch industry, but it's also part of the shame because you get you get con men that come in or con women and they it, it, that's the game that they're playing. I mean, I think of some of these big auctions where there's this room that seems to be, you know, professional and a bunch of guys in suits and there's this sort of whole ritual around it. But the whole thing is so that you can say with a straight face, I believe this watch was worth $1 million. Do I have any takes? Anyone? Anyone? You, sir, over there. Like, if it wasn't for that charade and that literally that confidence game, people would mm -hmm. be like, what the hell are you talking about? This isn't a million-dollar product. Exactly. And so that, that uh, doesn't work very well with the mainstream consumer. It's, it works with, you know, the, the, you know, the 50 and over crowd uh, that are still, you know, uh, commanding huge prices for some of these things. And I think that the, the, you know, that the, the industry itself has to really take a close look at what they're doing. And, you know, and there's, it, it would take a few hours to talk about Swiss laws and what makes something Swiss made and where you can make all the other parts. You know, these are supply chain issues that are actually the brand owner's business. Uh, and the, the issue with that is that the perception goes back to my $100 Swiss made watch on home shopping. How did that become Swiss made? And so uh, if, if, the, if the little woolly guy up in the Alps with a little block of chocolate on the corner of his bench that's pumping out these items of virtue is what is the marketing picture that people have in their minds uh, and the reality uh, many times is quite different than that. Well, uh, I, and we're almost out of time. And so I'll just sort of end, end with saying this and then we'll ask you a final question. The, the answer is that that, that that artisan in Switzerland, that watchmaker now no longer says Swiss made on, on, on his or her product. They have become so disillusioned that sort of the, what the watering down of Swiss made has meant is 
they actually don't have that term anymore. And that's actually the new trend is those, those very high-end independents um, will, will, will have a different term. Sometimes they'll say handmade in Switzerland or, or some variation thereof. But there's been a wholesale rejection at the high end of what Swiss made means because of exactly what you're talking about. Okay, so the last question, again, we'll have to have another chat about this, is as someone that understands the industry and someone that understands product, help the mainstream consumer identify a couple of things about brands, probably some things that, that, that the, the Tuman Company brand has that, that should add trust. When, you, when you're evaluating a new brand that's out there, what are a couple of things you can look at to identify if this is a brand I should trust or this is a lot of fluff and it's probably not for me? Uh, and, and, and then we'll have to go. I think the answer is very, very uh, easy to, it, it's, you can figure it out. You don't have to be a watch expert to know the answer. And that is look at the feedback on the brand that you're looking at of what the people have to say about the reliability of the products that they're selling. And I think that that's in, in itself uh, speaks volumes to the thousand mile an hour crash into a brick wall that's happening to these uh, brands that are su supposedly cutting out the middleman when actually they're not. And I, uh, I think that the, in the end, a, a person that buys a, a watch today, whether it's a $50 watch or a $500 watch or you know a hugely expensive watch, it's gotta be a reliable timepiece. Uh, reliable meaning that it's not gonna fall apart on your wrist like we're joking about watches made back in the 70s. And some made today. <laughs> and, and, and many made today. I could take you into a department store and I could physically yank the case back off of some of these fashion watches because their quality yeah. control is so weak. It's, the watches are just ready to fall apart. And it's, I don't, it, we could, it's we could have a whole conversation just joking and jesting about watches that you and I would be caught dead wearing, even though they are watches. <laughs> 100%. But, you know, Tumen Company, again, we're, we're making watches and selling them for between you know, $200 is an average retail price that if it was in Macy's or Nordstrom, it would be $450 regular price and they give you 20 off day in and day out. So I've got the watches that we sell priced so that you're getting the TJ Maxx price uh, right off of our website. And uh, I, I, have seen, I have seen some of the watches and I will say uh, they, they are nice. They are nicely done. And to sort of recap what Greg said is when you're evaluating a new brand, try to look at some reviews and some feedback people have that have actually seen and worn the watch for some period of time. Because very often someone who just has a marketing concept and maybe some type of slick design or some type of trendy design is going to cut every corner possible when it comes to the product. And people that care about the product are who you want to be buying a watch from. Well put. Okay, everyone, thank you so much for listening to this superlative podcast with me and Gregory Toom. Uh, the company is Tooming Company. Uh, Greg, thank you so much. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?